Good afternoon. Welcome to a rainy afternoon in Seattle. Uh, I have Kurt Glomdahl and Noah on here today to talk about the San Bernardino shootings and its widespread implications. Hi, guys. Hey. Good evening. Thanks for coming down to uh, on during Dead Week. Uh, good luck for everyone on their exams. They're difficult, I promise. But uh, if you study for them, your professor's already told you that. Um, I'm going to run through all my obligations right in the beginning because this is going to be an interesting debate. Um, make sure you check out our our blogs. It's blog.rainydog.org. Look at all of them. There's a lot of new blogs. We got stickers in, so if you want a Rainy Dog sticker, then... Um, come right down to the uh, studio um if you want to listen to us on the go you can we have a tune in radio app or you can just go on to your web browser and you know type it in and it'll pop right up it's mobile friendly um if you need still need winter quarter classes then i suppose you could go on my uw mobile they have all the things you would need for all those classes that you're missing but jesus it is kind of late for that um then if you there's also notify.uw.edu, which will give you those sort of whether there's space in the class or not. If you're still studying uh, or you need a room for group work, it's uw. or spacescout.uw.edu. And make sure you like us on Facebook. It's Rainy Dog Radio, also on Twitter and Instagram, or we have stuff things in the news um, on Facebook as well. So make sure you like that. But let's dive right in. This is going to be a fun show. Um, well, that's one way to put it. Um, we're going to talk about the San Bernardino shooting on December 2nd. That was six days ago, so last Wednesday. Um, a, a Two people who worked at a disabled facility uh, left a holiday party, went back to their apartment, came and shot. I think they killed 17 people and injured 21. My numbers may be incorrect. But they had, they had recently had a child and they left the child with someone to take care of it while they went out to carry this shooting. Now, um, they were, they said they were inspired by ISIS, inspired by the Islamic State movement. And they, they had, but one of them was a born U.S. citizen and they were they were married, so it's 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 kind of a multifaceted issue. We have this issue about the United States and its gun gun violence, and we have the issue of domestic terrorism and how ISIL as a as a as a concept uh, could threaten to threaten even the United States without ISIS's direct involvement. Um, Kurt is the VP of the UW Concealed Carry Group, and Noah is the VP for the Young Democrats. So we have both sides of this argument theoretically um but how how do we think this happened so we we've heard that they took out a loan a couple weeks before the shooting to to sort of purchase all of these um purchase all of these the equipment to carry this out but how how did these were two people that used legally bought firearms um who who modified them on their own but they were legally bought under california law which is fairly strict according uh, relative to the united states law kurt can you sort of that's correct. So one of the things in California that is really strict is both a magazine capacity. Um, and so that is in, per se, in rifles, you can have a maximum of 10 rounds in a magazine, whereas in other states, you can have, there are not limits on that. Um, and that's one of the things that they had were the magazines that hold, held more than 10 rounds. And so those being uh, against the law were were what they had for that shooting. So so they we presume that they didn't buy these rounds in California or are these guns also equipped to like accommodate larger magazine rounds or is is there some sort of distinction between a California rifle and a non-state non-California rifle? Sure. So one of the things um specifically speaking to magazines is 
Uh, you can buy a magazine online and have it shipped anywhere. Um, as as far as the rifles that they were using, they are of the AR-15 platform, which is a very modular platform and can be uh, changed around a lot. So one of the things that was uh, all in any AR-15 rifle, you can insert any AR-15 magazine. So wherever the capacity would be that five rounds, 10 rounds, 20, 30, and so on. Okay, and, and the AR-15 is a semi-automatic rifle, correct? Yes. So that means I, I have to click every single time I want to shoot, or I have to pull the trigger every single time I want to shoot. I can't just hold, hold my hand down. Correct. And so. automatic rifles are illegal federally. This is this is correct. All right. Um, I'm just giving a basis to of understanding. So is there a way to or do we think it's right that California has uh, do? Is it possibly a good idea that uh, California has such strict gun laws and they're not enforced federally? Or is there is there a way around this? It, it doesn't make sense to have these gun laws in place. I don't think so. And the reason why I think that is because uh, kind of for two reasons. One of them is from uh law-abiding citizen standpoint and the others from a criminal standpoint. Um, as we saw in this case, um, these criminals obtained magazines that were illegal to the area and then committed crime with them, whereas law-abiding citizens do not have, um, through definition of a law-abiding citizen, they're following the laws. So they would have the magazines that are uh, have the capacity limited which is 10, and so they would, would be following the laws. So by having a stricter gun law, um, it's kind of restricting the citizens of California who are law-abiding to what they can have access to. I want to play into this sort of idea that's been fuddling around for a little bit. What about uh, – it's fairly easy to get a concealed carry license or a gun license in any state in the United States, correct? Um, it depends on the state. So there's kind of two distinctions. Some states are – um, uh, they have, you can apply for a concealed carry permit through your, um, local municipality, um, like your sheriff's office or police office. And as long as you pass the background check and things like that, you can be granted a concealed weapons permit. Uh, Washington state is that way. Other states are shall issue states. And what that means is that you have to have sort of a reasonable, um, a reason to be granted a permit. So it's not the decision of whether you have a felony on your record per se. It's a decision of, oh, do they have a good enough reason that they should need one as decided by the government? So like a bodyguard or a, a, uh, a hunter perhaps or some something like that? Or what, what kind of reasons are we talking about? Um, one example, I guess, would be the example of uh, if you have someone who... Um, maybe it's harmed you in the past and you have a restraining order against them, that might be one reason um, why you could be granted a permit. Um, there's a, there's a, lot of, a lot of different reasons across the board. Okay, that's fair. And those are states uh, on the East Coast, Northeast, stuff like that? or uh, States, yeah. And they, they do vary around, around. A lot of them are on the East Coast. Okay. Um one of the one of the things that's so we we obviously in the United States we have far weaker gun uh, gun laws but we'll, 
there's, for example, the example in Japan, they treat a, a gun license similar to how a, uh, a driver's license is acquired. You, you test your, there's a test for your ability and your knowledge and your safety with using a gun. And there's a permit you have to apply for every five years or so. Is this sort of, is this a bad method of doing, going about it? Do you, do you think that testing the ability of whether to use a gun or not responsibly is, is perhaps uh, not, not a good way to go or... I, I understand the Second Amendment implications, of course, because it's it's the implication between a right and a privilege. Um, but go on. Sure. So I definitely think that training, whether you're driving a car or learning how to use a firearm, I think that is extremely important. And uh, that's one of the big things that we as a club, Students for Concealed Carry, really push um, on a on a, say, national level for the United States. I think that having... Training required isn't as much, it kind of goes against the Second Amendment as far as rights for it, but as far as whether it's a good idea to learn how to use a firearm before you purchase one, um, I think you're having experience with that, whether that's trained through trained professionals or family or friends who um, have been, have had experience with them before. Okay. Uh, Noah, do you, do you have any sort of thoughts on how we should approach this? I mean, yeah, I think that it, it's definitely important that we, people who we permit to carry firearms in public, you know, have the training that's really necessary to do that, right? The the kind of logic coming from the right is that a good guy with a gun will stop a bad guy with a gun, so we should have more good guys with guns. But that's essentially saying that the people, the good guys with guns are in almost a law enforcement type situation where they're expected in the event of, you know, a mass shooting to be the ones who are who are protecting uh, the rest of the population. And we already have so many problems in this country at the moment with, uh, you know, law enforcement not being trained well enough and, um, you know, killing innocent people uh, or, you know, all these different issues we've had arise over, you know, the past months. So how can we at one time deal with those issues and at the same time say that we think that more people who have less training than our law enforcement personnel should be carrying guns to essentially take that law enforcement um, to take their place in a lot of these situations. Kurt? Sure. So one of the things that I have, um, I definitely think that law enforcement, that is their job to protect, and there's their job to keep the peace and, and things like that. On the, on the other hand, the idea that law enforcement, they perform a wide range of tasks, and so... Um, having them be specifically trained in um, in one area um, doesn't. I don't think that encompasses them. I think they have a very broad spectrum. On the other hand, as far as uh, citizens who are not in the law enforcement role, I feel that they have the opportunity uh, to really specialize in that or um, to take that to another level of a personal account, and so they can they can go into training. Um, in the on that accord. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna go into something which, uh, unless uh, I'm gonna go into something else which uh, the San Bernardino police after the Paris attacks they had been they had been uh, running through exercises of multiple shooters multiple locations and the SWAT team was in the process of. Um, practicing for this sort of event when it actually happened in in California. Um, what do we, what do we the police is preparing for these sort of situations, but is it? Are we considering that uh, that having someone on the scene with a gun would 
would sort of uh, help alleviate the situation, be a first responder right on the spot, like immediately? Is that sort of what we're advocating for? As far as a police role or as far as a um, citizen role? As far as a citizen role. Well, I think I think viewing it as uh, someone who can respond from a personal level is kind of the mindset um, of concealed carry more so, where as someone who would conceal carry, their mindset would be, I would, I want to protect myself and those who are around me and those who I love, my family and things like that. Sure. Um, I don't think it's the mindset of, I'm going to protect everything in the world. I think it's, um, I think there's a little distinction between those. All right. That's fair. Um, but some of the debates we're having, the, like the, bad guy with a gun, good guy with a gun, uh, one of the sort of what I would draw as one of the conclusions to offer from, you know, having concealed carry on campuses is this is happening anyway. These sort of mass shootings, these sort of terrorist attacks are happening anyway. Uh, citizens with a gun, a concealed gun can prevent the shoot, not prevent, but respond quicker than the police officers. True. So uh, how do we how do we teach this, uh, the citizens in 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 these areas to respond effectively? How do we teach them to distinguish between uh, something that's self-defense or something that's, because the most predictable scenario I can think of, and I'm literally ballparking here, but uh, someone fires back as self-defense or is running away from someone as self-defense and someone who has not seen the whole situation automatically fires and kills the person defending themselves, correct? Sure. And, And one of the things I think that really when you make the decision to carry a firearm um i think just just the mindset of having a firearm and then feeling that you are completely safe and that you're invincible is uh totally incorrect if anything that should totally revamp your situational awareness um and speaking specifically for your example um i think it really depends on the situation and where it is if you're in a crowd of 500 people um and one of the things that we've seen is the first reaction of many people is to either try and hide or to try and run away from from the danger. And that's that's part of a natural instinct. Another natural instinct is to take that danger and to make it go away. And whether that be um, cars on fire across the street and you, you get out of your car and go help the person who's inside the car to get them out of there safely rather than running away because you don't want the car to blow up and you don't want to get hurt. Um, and I think it really depends on the situation. All right. Uh, that's fair. And we, we did see uh, people in the Seattle Pacific University shooting last year who, who did respond well uh, to someone with an assault. Right. We, we know that this sort of population exists that will go and, you know, try to alleviate the situation immediately. Uh, Giving them firearms is perhaps, or allowing them firearms is perhaps the next logical step because someone can eat more easily protect against the outbreak of a an enormous mass shooting. In any case, um, the the problem I have is statistically more firearms in a certain or in previous incidents statistically more firearms in a in a certain certain situation will lead to an increased amount of casualties uh is it is this because it hasn't reached critical mass or do we see people firing at the wrong person or not intelligently reacting to a situation well i think that 
with this with the situation of more guns is going to equal more uh, problems. Yes, that's how the world works. If you have the more cars you have, the more car accidents you have, and things like that. As far as um, accidents and and things along those lines of neg- negligible discharge and things like that, that is very much rep- reported on the fact of personal um, of the situation that they were in. All right. I mean, we're not just talking about accidents here. It's an issue of when you add guns to a situation, then, you know, when two neighbors get in an argument, one of them's more likely to shoot the other one. When when you have a student who's agitated at school, he's more likely to shoot a teacher or shoot a classmate. It's not we're not just talking about accidents, but when you add guns into situations, you're more they're more likely to result in gun violence. And that seems like it should be obvious. Um, and so I think that Timmy, I think your question had a little more to do with the fact that if we expand the number of people of guns, we're going to have way more gun deaths and we're not going to be safer because, sure, there, if every single person had a gun, we might have less mass shootings because it'd be hard to kill too many people before you die, but we'd have a hell of a lot more shootings. Well, what, so why, well, how is that proven where you have more guns and then there's more shootings? Well, I mean, I think that there are, you know, We've seen so many incidents where somebody has shot in a neighbor over a very small thing or, you know, they just got pissed off and shot them. And if you remove guns from those types of situations, then that argument would probably have been just that, an argument, and never a murder. And I think adding guns into our daily life um, creates more instances where uh, small things become fatal. Uh- well, well, we're sort of let's let's move on a little bit to sort of a ban against assault weapons because, uh, or let's move on towards uh, some something which is another sort of thing. Hunting, for example, is very popular in in very various parts of the United States, right? And it, it it makes sense to allow hunters to have you know hunting rifles because they sort of need them. I'm not going to use a slingshot to hunt; it's not happening. <laughs> um, but but you. Uh, What's the distinction between allowing people – let me put this question in a far more controversial way. Why does the Second Amendment exist? Why do we have this sort of constitutional amendment that, that still exists uh, when there are cries for it 200 years later that it's obsolete, that when it was created, um, people people were using muskets. People didn't – the founding fathers couldn't have possibly fathomed well, at what level firearms at this point. Is it possible that they would have reconsidered this sort of like every man is allowed to form a militia? You're allowed to be armed. You're allowed to be armed with these, these guns. Or should we consider the second? amendment right that from the bill of rights should we consider um that it's more of a privilege i'm not arguing against the population not having guns there are plenty of populations throughout the world that have firearms that have uh, assault weapons or semi semi-automatic rifles that that don't have the same amount of gun deaths as we do but they treat it differently that's my, that's my distinction here should we start treating the second amendment as a privilege instead of a right like driving a car or um smoking a cigarette well i suppose that's not a good example but well i think the distinction from here this is is not specifically with the firearms it's with the way that the country was founded and the reason why I, um one of the reasons why the country was founded was that they were breaking apart um from areas in Europe 
to come over here and do something new because that's the way that they wanted to do it. They wanted to do something by themselves. Um, and so having, putting these laws into place where they could do what they wanted on a, on a larger scale, I think that's the bigger reason behind it as far as um, weapon variants. Um, first of all, I think uh, the, the term when you're talking about um, assault weapons and assault rifles, assault weapons, you have... Um, just to be yeah, of course. Just to be clear, um, for the listeners, assault weapons you can you can assault some anybody with with anything, and it's going to be called an assault weapon. Assault rifle would be um, more on a right uh, on the rifle scale, same amount of rifle. Um, just just making that distinction there, and yeah. So, uh, Noah. Uh, well, I was just um, uh, I was going to add. Uh, something. <laughs> In any case, we uh, we I'm what I'm asking you, Kurt. Essentially, is 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 there a point in the future where you would feel more safe if the if the members of your club, for example, or the people you were advocating with, uh, went through training, went through practice, went through went through the process of getting a prop? I'm not saying it should be restricted to anyone. I'm simply saying that treated it more as I've I've earned this. I, I've I've I, I've gone through the classes. I've gone through the work of of earning this firearm, and I understand the responsibility behind it. Because right now, I, for example, who I have no idea what I'm doing with a gun, I'd probably shoot my own foot. Um, I can walk into, I don't know, a Walmart. That's that sounds right. Yeah. Um, I can walk into a Walmart, buy a pistol, and I would have zero understanding. And I'm under no obligation to attend any classes, under attend any sort of. Um, any sort of training with this rifle or firearm, even I, I, I don't have an obligation to to learn the nuances that come into play. Um, you, as as someone who's advocating for concealed carry, would it seems to me you would benefit from people being able to people knowing what they're doing, knowing what they're doing with their firearms, because obviously the members of your club are well, very well informed. They understand the nuances. They understand the responsibilities, but they don't take into account the random psychological madman that uh, can pick up a gun and uh, won't understand. Is it is it possible to transition into sort of this privilege with classes, with with obligations behind it to understand the responsibilities, much like we treat other things in society? I think that's not a bad idea. I think, I think having um, more so the idea of classes where you have to take a class is training. I think is good, and I think everybody who carries a firearm or owns a firearm um, or is thinking about owning a firearm should go through some training, whether that be um, very official or or not as official, um, maybe in a family or a friendly instance. Whether having it before you're able to Purchase fire, purchase a firearm. Um, I don't think it ha- has to be restrictive that way. I mean, that's fair. I, frankly, I'd be happy if you were obligated to take a certain class after I bought a firearm. Yeah. I'd be. I mean, if if you needed a pistol because your crazy ex was chasing you down and you really didn't want to sit through a six hour class that was happening in three weeks, uh, that sort of makes sense. But the fact that you're obligated, it. it I would be very happy as a random citizen without a gun if I knew that everyone that had a gun had been obligated to learn the responsibilities of a gun. I think that this makes a little bit more sense. Um, I, I think that's generally the misgivings with anyone on the left uh, were uh, 
we're understandably, uh, I mean, can you perhaps, uh, I'm understandably perhaps um, scared of the fact that I can buy a gun and I'm incompetent when it comes to that. Noah? Yeah, I absolutely think that we should require more training out of the people who own firearms in our society because, well, for the reasons that you all both listed, um, but it's also about more than training. It's not just about the fact that someone who doesn't know how to use a gun can go buy a gun, which is crazy, but it's also about the fact that someone who, you know, we pretty much know might want to use a gun to harm people can buy a gun, right? When we have things like the gun show loophole, which allow people to buy guns without background checks. Uh, when we have things like, you know, the fact that people who are on the terrorist watch list or people who are on our no-fly list are allowed to buy guns in this country um, is insane. And for me personally, I'm less concerned, although I am concerned, about the fact that people with no training can walk around with a gun. I'm more concerned about the fact that somebody who we know poses a danger you know, to society, somebody who even, you know, has committed violent felonies in the past could buy guns. Do we think that this is a legislative issue, though, uh, with, our, with our Congress, that they're misrepresenting the interests of the population? Because I, I doubt that you support anyone from our no-fly list or our terrorism list uh, walking in and buying a, a sol- or a semi-sol- uh, semi-firearms. Sure, firearms <laughs> of any sort, really. Sure. And the, the mindset of, of in the United States of having being able to purchase fire, a firearm is the mindset I believe that the country was founded on. Being able to go out and buy a firearm legally from a gun store, um, if you have, say, felonies on your record um, restricting that from you, um, I don't think that is good. But going to your friend down the street and being able to buy the same firearm, um, I think that's a different issue as well. Uh, taking the instance of the gun shows, gun show, um, gun shows, we have people kind of in that sense, sometimes they want to make a quick sale or, uh, they're just trying to get some money to make by, to, to make it by. I work in sales. I understand that. (laughs) And uh, it it might be that they aren't quite as strict as someone who uh, maybe a larger corporation who has multiple stores around the country and they have to apply by the same exact rules, but they aren't as strict at it. But see, it's not just about people being strict and enforcing the rules. It's about the fact that in most states, that's not even a rule, that it is entirely legal to sell a gun to somebody at a gun show without asking them for a background check. And these background checks are cheap. They take seconds to do. It's not a massive burden on somebody who's trying to sell their weapons, but it's it does so much to protect people from dangerous people buying those weapons. Well, no, let's look at it this way. What kind of background checks are we – Is it's a mental health background check and it's – is it? Is it a mental health background check and is it a felony background check, correct? Or is it – what kind of background checks are being advocated? Uh, yeah, I mean – Basically, it's already illegal for people, at least as far as I understand, who have like violent felonies to buy weapons. Okay. But they can do it perfectly easily because in so many circumstances, when you're buying a firearm, you don't actually have that law being enforced by checking people's backgrounds. So things like, yeah, mental health or, or you know, violent felonies. Sure. 
Um, uh, the issue I have with uh, felonies, it, it's a it, this is a different debate, of course, but uh, keeping the uh, continuing to pr- punish someone in the prison who came out of the prison system, um, continuing to punish them by restricting their rights for me is wrong and incorrect. But that's an issue with our prison system and that it doesn't reform people and it doesn't you know, give them a give them a shot afterwards. Uh, violent or felons of any sort will mm, they're very likely to end up back in prison. So that's a different issue. But, I, but I'm somewhat worried about uh, people with mental health issues, especially uh, significant mental health issues or people who who simply um, who are on our terrorist list or, or terrorists. There's no check at all with gun shows. And I, I feel that I feel that it's a sort of a loophole that the legislature is unwilling to close because of certain lobbying efforts and that the population is more or less completely willing to. It just seems like a pressure point that it, it receives a lot of press. You know, we're talking about it now, I suppose. That's one way to put it. But um, I, I'm going to – we're going to take a break unless either of you are going to – we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be right back soon. But uh, we're going to come back and talk about how it affects domestic terrorism because that's – this is what the FBI is investigating. Uh, this San Bernardino shooting, yes, it's part of the gun control debate as a whole or the gun law debate as a whole. But these – the people um, who who – who perpetrated this uh, were were said to be inspired by uh, ISIS and despite ISIS having no claims to it. So uh, we're going to be right back. Give us a moment, but uh, see you in a couple minutes. Don't let that no more. Don't let that no more. 
Hey guys, we're back. Um, so now we get to talk about the far easier issue of uh, domestic terrorism. Woo! Um, so the the two shooters that were involved with this San Bernardino shooting, they are um, they are in. There's a uh, Tashfin Malik and her husband Syed Rizwan Farouk. We're going to call them Malik and Farouk because I butchered all of the pronunciation. But um, one of them was a U.S. born citizen, and one of them was their uh, spouse, and um, they were they were said to be inspired by this this sort of Islamic State movement and and the movement of um, these sort of attacks that that ISIS has been going on about. Now, Noah, you and I talked about this right after the Paris attacks about how they're removing the sort of gray area in between believers and non-believers and people that are acting and not acting. This is one of the most more closer to home references that we have. We have these people that that have sympathized with the um, with the Islamic State and who are able to who found it quite easy to actually acquire weapons in the past few weeks actually uh, and and uh, and start a, a an attack without any support from ISIL. Um, how likely are we to see more of these sort of offshoots pop up amongst especially young couples, young young uh, citizens of the United States who who are attracted to the ISIS cause by good marketing? I would think fairly likely. I mean, I'm sure that we'll get better at, at you know, fighting this sort of situation. It's a new situation, so our intelligence community is still adapting. And I'm, I'm sure that Silicon Valley will get better at finding, you know, being able to find on social media where this is happening and, and identifying who is being targeted to, you know, by ISIS. Um, and I'm sure that our intelligence community will get better at identifying um, people who are of risk. But when you have like a, a, a lone wolf situation like this where it's not the Al-Qaeda style of plotting for years and communicating with people internationally and it's just two a husband and a wife who decide that they're going to you know do it on their own, uh, it, it obviously makes it much harder to track down, much harder to prevent, and I'm, I'm, I would not be surprised to see it happen again. I totally agree. Um, the other sort of thing that we're running into is um, we – what sort of situation is their kid left in too? Because he, I don't know if it's a he or she, I'm sorry. Um, but they have a six month old newborn who they, who they left just before planning the attack and, uh, or who just before actually uh, perpetrating the attack. And this, this kid isn't going to be, you know, well received. He, he's going to know his parent, who his parents are eventually, unless child prevention services do a spectacular good job of, you know, raising this child in in a sort of foster system that doesn't always work quite as well. Um, but what my point was, um, I had another point. I just sort of segued. Uh, my point is, uh, why do we have the NSA at all? Um, we we know that they'd been planning this for a few weeks. We we know that they took a loan, that they had Facebook messages, that they sort of sort of started having these ties to the Islamic State. That they sort of, like in the last couple of weeks, and we consistently um, sort of, or our government consistently sort of funds this national security association administration. administration that, um, that is said to be spying us on us all the time and all of our sort of channels of communication and sort of hanging on keywords. If this wasn't a keyword, if what, what is a keyword? How, how do we have the NSA as a preventative sort of body that, doesn't prevent this. 
Well, like I said, I think it's a very new type of, of situation and and that it's not what they're looking for. You know, they have always, you know, in the past with attacks coming from other from other terrorist organizations, especially Al Qaeda, there was more planning. There was more communication between the kind of parent organization in the Middle East and people acting in the United States. And so that's what they're looking for. And I don't know if they were really expecting to see somebody act without having more communication coming from from the Middle East. And um, like I said, they're going to evolve and I'm sure they'll get better at it. Uh, but yeah, they did miss a lot of signs in this first one because I don't know if it's what they were looking for. Um, what, what I was also going to draw into is this uh, sort of, uh, I read this just last week, um, just how Kafkaesque is the court that oversees NSA spying. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA court, um, it, it, it takes into account everything that uh, the NSA is supposed to be doing. And you, the NSA asks to be able to spy on someone. And out of uh, 30-something thousand cases, I think, six, six cases were not um, – uh, they the uh, for, foreign intelligence service uh, court they rejected a grand total of eleven cases out of thirty three thousand nine hundred government surveillance applications. Uh, are they going to spy on us more domestically? Like because we're talking about Al Qaeda on the radio, does that mean that suddenly I'm going to throw up a red flag and the NSA is going to spend ten minutes looking at me before realizing that I'm a completely normal individual? Well, I mean that's a lot of the concern that you see from from privacy advocates. Um, and yeah, sure, there might be some more of that. Although, like you said, after 10 minutes, they'd probably realize that you're not a threat and move on. And, you know, if it were me, I wouldn't be too upset knowing that the NSA maybe peeked at my Facebook page before giving up. Um, but yeah, you know, after these attacks, one danger is that, that you know, like after 9-11, we saw a lot of erosion of, you know, the privacy right because, you know, because people were trying to prevent against another attack. And it is definitely something that, that could happen again, although, you know, given the Edward Snowden situation that we've had just in the past few years and shining a lot of light on what the NSA has been doing in just uh, this past year or within the past year, uh, we had um, the USA Freedom Act passed, which kind of reined in a little bit of that uh, NSA apparatus. Um, and so I don't think we're going to see the same kind of crackdown of, you know, the intelligence agency uh, on privacy but but it's definitely something that you know could happen kurt do you sort of advocate for this or do you do you agree with this sort of increased domestic spying even though you have obviously done nothing wrong do do you agree with the nsa parsing through your communication information not just well, let's be clear the nsa doesn't just browse at your facebook page they look at information that's sent to and from you i remember a comic in the new yorker several years ago is like i have this email i'm going to send to obama but i don't know where to send it he's like oh just save it into your drafts obama will see it eventually um do we sort of i'm not thrilled about it we know that the nsa doesn't just sort of look at our facebook page it's it's a little bit more nefarious than that correct yeah, I I I think that a lot of people advocate for not wanting to to be private, to having their content and what they do and how they do it. I feel like they want to be private about it. The other hand is say you were were involved in a in a terrorist attack, would you would you have the feeling that you don't want this to happen again? Of course. Well, this at the same point, would you want all of your communications to be monitored so that this doesn't happen again? Um, maybe not. 
We we have sort of a example of a surveillance state on a different level uh, in in England. I keep bringing it up. The city of London is a very very. It's not a surveillance state. It's a, a surveillance state. It's more of a surveillance city with their CCTV cameras. But uh, it, I, I doubt something like that would. Well, in the light of these sort of terrorist attacks, it might it might fly more surveillance cameras on cities, solving more policing issues. But we we have to consider another issue. Um, ISIS has seen this work. ISIS hasn't claimed responsibility for this attack, despite them obviously probably being pleased um, that uh, just a small group of people who weren't on a no-fly list, they weren't on a terror watch list, they weren't on anything, a small group of people uh, on their own uh, have sort of managed to escape the notice of the American public. Is it possible that they start sending people over and sort of on their own, completely without any direction from the completely without direction from the uh, public or from the overbranching authority engage in these sort of terrorist attacks on American soil or French soil or British or Irish or Belgian soil? Uh, you know, I suppose that's possible, but I think that, that the threat is more from the people who are already here and not necessarily people that ISIS sent, but people who are born here, or people who immigrated before they became radicalized. Um, you know, the United States is taking uh, steps to try to limit ISIS's ability to send people over, right? On the, you hear a lot of the Republican, especially the presidential candidates, um, you know, freaking out about the refugee program. Uh, but the more realistic ways, at least in my opinion, that they would be coming over are being limited. So, for example, just within the hour, uh, the United States House passed by huge support. I think there were about 19 votes against um, a measure that that restricts our visa waiver program to say that people who have visited in the past five years, I believe it's uh, at the at the time, I believe it's Iraq and Syria, and that you, know, you can expand that to other countries that are dangerous, that people who have visited those countries don't uh, no longer apply for that uh, visa waiver program. So our government is taking steps to limit ISIS's ability to send people to the United States. Um, I think that the threat is really posed by people who are already here and are being radicalized um, by ISIS's social media presence uh, and their other tools. And this is another problem we sort of saw. Uh, we I talked about it with Max and Joe about this sort of um, this recruitment of um, of young Muslims Muslims or Muslim converts into their sort of scheme. And once they're recruited, they they're more than happy to sort of tell them, "Hey, stay exactly where you are. You're more help to us in in California, in uh, Washington State." Um, how? Do any of us know how ISIS is recruiting these uh, young Muslims? I, because I honestly don't. I'm looking at – I'm trying to figure out uh, – they're, they're trying to inspire these uh, through videos, right? Just through videos of what they're doing in Iraq and Syria and what they're trying to create. But I, I don't find that attractive. I don't see how um, a young person, especially in the United States, if, if they've grown up without uh, – huh, if – if they've grown up without uh, racism, if they've grown up without discrimination for being Muslim, if they've grown up without these things. Uh, the, the problem I'm seeing is, of course, uh, we have a delightful presidential campaign where yep. these things aren't ifs. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, you know, that, that these are, those aren't ifs. And I'm pretty sure if you're Muslim in the United States, then you've grown up with quite a bit of racism. I don't think there's many exceptions to that. Um, and I think now more than ever, potentially, um, 
you know, you're seeing, like Timmy, like you mentioned, that on the Republican side, there's a lot of really racist rhetoric that's that ISIS, I'm sure, loves. You know, Donald Trump has probably helped ISIS recruit in the United States more than more than a lot of stuff that they could have done. Um, and and the backlash that we're seeing to the refugee programs is something that ISIS absolutely wanted to do. They're doing a good job, ISIS, of of using their attacks to try to uh, divide people and to get countries to do exactly what ISIS wants them to do in order to help recruit. They're doing a good job of of getting some Islamophobic uh, backlash, um, which which is exactly what ISIS needs. Um, we're very fortunate in the United States that uh, the the Republicans have united against – well, have united and said that uh, Donald Trump is completely out of line with his anti-Muslim statements, that, that it's it's just not all right. It's not uh, – Paul Ryan has mentioned it. Rand, all of the other Republican candidates have been against Donald Trump and saying we have to police against uh, – it's very, you know – Nazi rhetoric, uh, anti-Jewish ID cards, Muslim ID cards. It's very similar. But um, the problem is that these far-right politicians are gaining footholds, especially in other countries. France just had its regional elections where the ruling party um, led by Francois Hollande has uh, dropped to third place. And the the far, far right, this sort of anti or this sort of isolationist um, approach has has received a lot of traction. Um, how do we... This country wasn't built on thousands of years of history. This country, especially this, uh, the United States, it's, it's made of immigrants to this country. How do we uh, rise above that? Is there a way to rise above that? Kurt, do you have... Like, is there a way to rise above the rhetoric from the absolute far right? Well, I think... Having a new country really takes a place of what we saw. Come, what kind of what I was talking about earlier is they brought across the across the ocean. They brought what they were feeling and what they wanted to do and implemented it. Um, having the freedom of, per se, someone like Trump to speak like that um, may be totally a, uh, it's it's legal. But it might not be the greatest idea as far as um, helping out other organizations or help helping or hurting his campaign or um, whether different people believe that that is a good idea or not. Do, do we think we can uh, do we think we can. Are we still desperately hoping that he crashes and burns eventually? Is this is this the ticket to Donald Trump crashing and burning, or do we think he's going to continue getting support based on this supreme anti or anti immigrant supreme isolationist policy? Noah, well, I mean, I think from the people he's getting support from, they love it when he says this sort of thing, and I think it shows that you know the far right in this country is is in a really scary and dangerous place at this point, um, but. It, I don't think Donald Trump really ever had the potential to draw in the supporter base that he would need to be elected president. And I still don't think that he really has a shot at the nomination. I know that, you know, we're within 60 days of voting and he's still in first place. But come Super Tuesday, I cannot imagine that, that Donald Trump would still be leading, you know, would, would be winning states. When people are 
have a ballot in front of them that says President of the United States, and there's, I don't think they're going to fill in the bubble next to Donald Trump's name. I think it's easy to tell a pollster that you are supporting him because he's the guy you've heard the most about in the news, and, and he's the one that's being exciting and funny. But I don't think the people who vote for president, I don't think that they're actually going to fill in that bubble. I, don't, I still don't think he really has any chance at this. Um, but I think that these sorts of things really help him secure the far-right base that he, he's been feeding off of so far. I think I think that voting on um, maybe for an internet sit site to just voice your opinion um, isn't all that different from the actual ballot that you're going for. And as far as marketing purposes that per se and things that Donald Trump is doing that puts him ahead of other candidates as we see it now, the basis of citizens voting isn't purely on what they think is going to best happen as a presidency, it's based on what they think and how and what they've heard, I believe, um, where um, if it were a perfect system, then you would be basing the decision on who you vote for. Um, then it would be based on what they're actually going to be doing and what they've done in the past. But I don't think that's the case in our current society. The, the last sort of question we're going to encounter is, is this going to cause a schism in the Republican Party. Uh, the United States sort of has this um, very, very well-defined Democratic and Republican Party, but we've, we've seen sort of like shifts in policies between the two of them. And uh, more more to the point, which side is going to win? Is it going to be a more moderate, less less um, less isolationist Republican Party, or if this happens, of course, um, or is it going to be very very conservative, very small government, except for in the case of the military and the and the uh, and immigration? I really don't know. <laughs> I think the Republican Party is is pretty unpredictable right now, um, and. Coming into 2016, a lot of people thought that the Republican primary was going to be insane, but I don't think anyone expected it to be this insane. So I think that anyone who's trying to uh, predict where the Republican Party is going to be in a few years is, is going to have a pretty slim chance of getting it right. I think I think it goes for both sides. Um, I think that maybe something with the issue with Hillary Clinton and kind of what she's about right now um, with files and different emails and things like that of maybe more of a trust issue versus a outward facing issue um, like Trump has. I think that no matter whose side you're on or who you vote for or what your issues are, I think that that is, that's going to be found on both sides because um, while that may be your view on Trump and that may be a fair one for many people, there's going to be somebody who's on the other side who's going to have the exact same, same opinion for someone who, um, is on that side. That's that's actually incredibly fair. Uh, Bernie Sanders has been dragging Hillary Clinton further and further to the left because she simply had to accommodate to the larger and larger support that he's gotten. He he's not exactly the most quiet uh, campaign. Uh, it's not the most quiet campaign in the world. So it I. I feel there's a difference, though, um, and I'm going to sort of explain my thought process. I feel uh, Bernie Sanders is dragging Hillary to the left, but I feel uh, Trump is splitting the party in half. Now, I, I'm not actually sure because I'm I, I don't know, um, but it's. I feel it might be a different concept, but you're entirely right, of course. Uh, the rhetoric on the Democratic side is very similar. It's a very anti-establishment, despite it's it's a it's a wolf or it's a it's a different sort of. 
It's like uh, Rainier Cherry. It's the same sort of concept, just a different color. Uh, this is an anti-establishment politician who's been in the establishment for the last 30 years, whereas Trump is simply an anti-establishment politician. They both have these sort of policies, which are quite different than that of the straight establishment politicians. Now, um, that's that's just that's an excellent point of view, actually. I hadn't considered that. Well, and I think it, that is true, but at the same time, you know, yes, Bernie has dragged Hillary to the left a little bit, but Bernie and Hillary and Martin O'Malley were already much closer ideologically than the Republican field is. You know, that's still a, I think there's a much bigger difference between John Kasich and um, Ted Cruz or Ben Carson or Donald Trump than there is between Bernie Sanders and Martin or and uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, but you know, it is also true that on the Republican side, while Donald Trump is not especially dragging the establishment politicians to the right, um, people like Ted Cruz have very much done that. They have, uh, you know, gotten Marco Rubio to denounce his immigration position so that he can appeal more to the uh, the far right of the party. And there's obviously something different about Donald Trump that's causing the establishment instead of trying to embrace him and and, you know, try to appeal to his supporters they're just denouncing him and that's because donald trump is is racist all right uh we're gonna cut it off right here uh next is ben holman but thank you everyone for listening we 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 enjoyed this one uh thank you so much to kurt and noah um we'll see you we'll see you soon Uh, thank you so much for coming and um good luck on finals to everyone listening because you know they're difficult study and listen to your professors occasionally but uh everyone enjoy your rainy seattle uh tuesday afternoon guys have a nice evening all right thank you so much thanks for the invitation thanks for thanks for coming down Uh, see you soon guys